and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Sarah J. Schendel, Assistant Professor of Academic Support at Suffolk University Law School. We will discuss her article, What You Don't Know Can Hurt You, Using Exam Wrappers to Foster Self-Assessment Skills in Law Students, which is published in the Pace Law Review. So welcome to the show, Sarah. Thanks so much, Brian. I'm I'm really glad that you came on to talk about this paper because I got to say, I absolutely love it. And I learned a huge amount from your paper and it's making me think about what I can do to be a better teacher. Um, and I understand that there are actually maybe things that you no longer agree with. And now I'm like, now, now I'm like, I'm, I'm dying to hear what they are. But before we get there, I wonder if you could kind of set the stage for listeners by talking a little bit about what we know about how students learn and what stops them from learning effectively. Yeah, thank you. That is the big question, right? Um, I sometimes say or describe my job as thinking and learning about learning and thinking. Um, And, you know, I like pretty much every other law professor, if not almost all law professors, I'm not trained in education. I'm not trained in pedagogy. Um, I don't have a master's in ed. I don't have a PhD in ed. And so a lot of what I do has been trying to learn how to teach and more importantly, to understand how my students learn. Um, And so that's a big project, right? How do we learn? We learn in so many different ways. There's a lot of different science behind it. Um, I'm not a scientist. I don't know the nitty gritty, but I'm kind of desperate to understand what we can do to make learning effective for our students and ideally enjoyable and what we can do to make sure that the way we're teaching is effective for them. So one big thing we know, and that I think legal education has understood but is still trying to implement, is that students don't learn best by trying to cram a lot of knowledge either over a semester or at the end of the semester and then being asked to regurgitate it once or just being quizzed on it once. And so a lot of my paper and a lot of the work that other people with far more experience are doing is really looking at what is this model of self-regulated learning? What is this model of students learning something, forgetting it, looking back at how they learned it, how they might learn it a second time, applying it, looking at the way that they applied it, where it went wrong, where it went right, and trying it again, right? How can we create a cycle of attempt and fail attempt and succeed, because that really is at core what helps people not just learn, but retain information as kind of a broad overview. Well, I mean, what kind of factors help good students learn well and prevent less good students from learning effectively? So one thing, I mean, what kind of brought me to this article is that a big part of my job is meeting with students who are referred to academic support either following a midterm that didn't go well or a final that didn't go well. So when I meet with students, maybe it's just because I love detective mysteries and detective novels, but it really is kind of trying to unravel this mystery or this problem. So they come before me and I often have just one or two kind of um, bullet points to go by, namely what grade did they get on something? And so I'm trying to ask them, okay, I know that this was the end result of this learning experience, right? You got this grade that wasn't good, wasn't what you wanted, right? Wasn't probably what you expected. What led up to that? You know, what kind of 
happened during the learning process that made this performance on an exam not what you wanted and not successful. And what I found is that students oftentimes weren't really able to provide me with that answer. Um, sometimes they would give me what they saw as the answer. They'd say, I'm bad at multiple choice. But then I would talk to them and I'd, under, I'd figure out, well, the underlying you know, comprehension just really isn't there of the material. Or they would say, you know, I ran out of time. And so I said, well, let's back up and see how are you approaching this problem? And so I think what I started realizing is that, you know, ultimately what was going to make all of these students stronger was building in that process of reflecting on how they were learning and what went wrong and what didn't. And what happens for a lot of our students, especially high achieving students, which most students in law school are, is that they're not always open to reflecting on what went wrong. And part of that is because I know there's some debate about this, but it's this idea of fixed mindset that a lot of our students have, that they're saying, well, if I'm smart, I should be able to do this. And if it didn't go well, it means I'm not smart. Well, that closes off all doors for learning, right? If you've already decided that your success on something is attached to um, an inherent quality of your intelligence, then you're not going to seek ways to improve your study habits, improve your exam taking. Um, So that's one thing that I discuss in the article is the way that fixed growth mindset kind of intelligence is what makes you succeed closes you off from being able to learn as opposed to saying law school, like everything else, is a skill that you can strengthen. Reading cases is a skill you can strengthen. Taking exams is a skill you can strengthen. And so reconceptualizing your academic performance as this is one marker of how my learning experience is going, but it is not a kind of objective assessment of my qualities, my intelligence. That's one big barrier to learning. Well, so my impression is that law school in sort of the format of law school is pretty consistent among different schools for better or for worse. I wonder if you could kind of reflect a little bit on things that we do in legal pedagogy that are or maybe aren't sort of consistent with encouraging the kind of self-assessment that you think helps students actually learn. Yeah. You know, I think that law school and legal education in the last couple of years, you know, to some extent with with ABA's nudging is getting a little better at this in terms of encouraging formative assessment in addition to summative assessment. So that is in encouraging assessment kind of along the way, assessment for the purposes of giving feedback, not just for evaluation, as opposed to summative assessment, which is just kind of here's your grade, here's how well you did on this one performance. So I think law legal education is improving at that. You know, I've seen more and more podium or doctrinal professors starting to work in some um, IRAC or CREAC or kind of exam taking skills into their classes, which I think is awesome. A lot of the research does seem to indicate that, you know, rather than saving those kind of skills to be taught by academic support or separate from the doctrinal classroom, it really is most effective to teach a lot of that skills acquisition, whether it's case briefing or taking an exam or doing an oral argument within the context of a doctrinal class for, for I think, a variety of reasons. So I think more professors are doing that. Clinicians and clinical law um, programs are fantastic um, at doing a lot of self-assessment. I think that they do more kind of... Um, 
self-assessment activities than, than other classrooms, which I think is fantastic. Um, you know, I mean, the number one way that we don't do it is by relying on end of semester exams as the only measurement um, of a student's grade. And obviously that's something that's a very old school approach to law school, but is still really popular among professors for, for a variety of reasons, I think. And I think that that is one of the main things that I would like to see changed. And that was a lot of where my article came from, was trying to understand why a lot of professors still rely solely on an end of semester exam and what I can do to help make that not the only or easiest way to go about it. Well, so I want to talk to you about what we as professors can do to foster self-assessment. But I know that there's a lot of law students who listen to the podcast as well, who may or may not have professors who are doing those things themselves. I wonder if you have any thoughts on what students can do to foster self-assessment and effective self-assessment sort of on their own. So one thing that's exciting to me, um, there's a definition of self-assessment that I was working from, and I apologize, I don't remember exactly who it came from. But one part of this definition of self-assessment, the first step is that the person who's being assessed should be the one setting the kind of rubric or the, the goal points by which they're going to be tested. And that's not always the case with some of the self-assessment that I suggest. A lot of the kind of the self-assessment tools that I discuss would be that the professor is kind of saying, here are the benchmarks, have you met them? So I love the idea of people developing self-assessment tools for themselves because it adds on that additional layer of ownership and self-involvement and self-assessment. And the other reason I love that is because it speaks to the part of my article about intrinsic motivation, finding that you know, if students can stay aligned with their intrinsic motivation for going to law school and for wanting to succeed in classes, that's actually going to put them in a better position to learn. Um, And without going on too much of a tangent, part of the reason that was so interesting to me is that there's been some research on professional identity development showing that law students um, and legal education in general, kind of the law school experience tends to reorient people towards extrinsic motivation as opposed to intrinsic motivation over the three or four years that students are in law school. So that's, you know, stressful for a number of reasons. So I think that law students can develop self-assessment for themselves in a number of ways. One, I would say, you know, the way that I think about it, that I tell students of looking at a calendar and looking at what you want to accomplish is when I was practicing immigration law, if I would get a date for a hearing in 2022, I wouldn't just put that date in my calendar. I would also put in a date saying 30 days until that date, 50 days until that date, six months until your call-up date. And so I encourage students to look at their semester the same way, right? If your goal is to succeed on your finals, don't just look at your finals. Put a date in your calendar saying, I have three months till my finals. And then step back and say, well, what should I have accomplished by those three months? right? Like, let's work backwards and kind of give myself a road path to success. So similarly, I would say that to students. If you're a 1L, if you're just looking at your, my goal is to be a public defender, that's awesome, but that's three years away, right? It's hard to stay connected to that goal. So I would say, okay, let's find a goal closer to you. Maybe your goal is, you know, to have success on your 1L fall. And then let's break that down even more and say, well, what would success look like to you? 
right? Let's find some real benchmarks of what that would look like. And then let's make ways to check in with that. So maybe tell yourself, you know, I want to have, even if I don't have midterms, I want to have a midterm check-in with myself. I want to see like, what's important to me? What am I going to assess myself on? Have I been attending classes? You know, have I been doing most of the reading? If I'm honest with myself, am I understanding most of the reading? Right. And then the next step would be saying, and what am I going to do about those things? So it's giving yourself kind of time to check in. And also if you're giving you an opportunity to align yourself with your values, right? Like maybe one of the things you're checking in on is, okay, this 1L law school curriculum isn't speaking to me. I want to stay connected to my reason for going to law school. So maybe one thing I want to put on my self-assessment is, have I read something, gone out and read something that connects me with why I'm here in the first place, right? That has to do with racial justice or social justice, or have I you know, found a way to talk to a professor or a practicing attorney who is going to motivate me to stay focused. So that's a very long, all over the place answer, but it's a way of saying, you know, I think involving students in setting what their goal is for themselves and what their values are is just a super valuable skill. I feel like there are really kind of stereotypical ways we encourage students, law students, to study for law school, in law school, for kind of learning in law school. I wonder if you think there are things that we do in that context that encourage or discourage or consistent or inconsistent with the kind of self-assessment that helps students learn most effectively? Great question. I mean, the number one thing that students always tell me they're surprised to find out has limited efficacy is rereading. And I think that's related to self-assessment because I think part of the reason that rereading feels so good to students, right, if you've read Make It Stick or any of these other fantastic books about reading, is that it feels familiar. And so when you're rereading, you're thinking, the student's thinking, oh, I do, you know, I understand this. This must mean I know it. And so I think that pushing students to figure out the difference between familiarity and comfort and learning is super important. And so telling them straight up front that things like rereading aren't effective and why is just one very, you know, basic thing. But the broader thing is trying to help students understand that struggling it oftentimes means learning, right? Like I I see that again and again, students come to me and they're like, I'm really not getting it. You know, I'm just not getting law school. Maybe I'm not supposed to be here. Maybe I'm not smart. And I talk to them and they're asking me and I'm saying, okay, tell me what you don't think you understand. Tell me what happened in class. And they're telling me these amazing questions where I realize you do understand, you're just grappling with understanding, right? Which is part of learning. And so I always, I love working with 1Ls, especially because I tell them, I'm not worried about the answers that you have. I want to know what questions you have. And the questions that you're telling me help me understand that you're learning, right? Like the fact that you're asking me, well, I don't understand why the court in this case, you know, came out with this holding when the previous case said this and this fact was different. I'm like, you're getting it, right? These questions show me that you're pushing your way to understanding. And so I think trying to help students understand that things like rereading or highlighting or, you know, these things that kind of make us feel comfortable and in control that, believe me, I understand why that feels great, right? We're all desperate for control and that feels amazing. 
but that real learning might actually be coming where they feel really uncomfortable and they don't totally know what's happening and to help them understand that that's okay. And that's good. And that's nothing to be ashamed of. That's, that's where kind of the rubber hits the road. Um, and so I would love to see us do that as professors. And a lot of professors do engage with that. You know, when you ask a student a question, really not just looking for them to have a kind of memorized answer, but looking for them to be grappling with, you know, saying, I don't know, but I think it's this because it reminds me of that other case and saying, yes, yes, you know, that's it. Keep going. Keep going with that, that questioning, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. No, I could not love that more. So I used to teach civil procedure. And the thing I always told my students was, if you think you understand personal jurisdiction, for example, you're in trouble. If you don't understand personal jurisdiction, that means you're learning because I don't understand it either. (laughs) As someone, you know, Civ Pro was my 1L class. So I'm thrilled to hear that. I think that means that I'm a Civ Pro uh, professor, maybe now an expert now, because I struggled with that. And you know, you, what you're saying is part of what I love modeling for students, which is modeling for them that we don't know, you know, and modeling for them that we are confused as professors, and that sometimes we're still struggling to figure something out. And I'll be honest with you, you know, for me, that's a challenge. I'm a relatively new professor. I'm a junior professor. I teach non-doctrinal class. I'm a relatively young woman and, you know, it can be hard to know how to model that for students, right? When is it safe to model vulnerability or model not knowing or model kind of muddling your way through, through questions. But I think that that is one of the most valuable tools we have for showing our students how learning works um, is through showing them a little bit of our intellectual experience and, and how to grapple with learning. I feel like one of the sort of universals of the law school experience is outlining classes. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about whether you think that is or isn't or kind of could or couldn't be a effective learning strategy. And given that students are going to do it regardless of what we say about it, if they're going to outline, how do they do it effectively? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Outlining is like, you know, in the big top five of academic support things. The main thing that I tell students about outlining again and again ad nauseum is that outlining is a process, not a product. And what I tell them is, you know, 1L year especially can be so overwhelming that there's this real desire to try to master it through outlining. You know, you're like, if I could just get the right font and the right color coding and the right tabs and everything in the right order, then it's going to be kind of an external manifestation of everything clicking in my head, you know? So there can be this focus. And I was totally one of those people. I did not love law school. I was desperate for, you know, getting a grasp on it. And I think I even got my outlines maybe spiral bound at Kinko's or something. I mean, I was definitely all in on trying to um, control things via my outlines. And so I try to remind students, no one is grading you on your outline. Your outline is a tool. It is a tool for you to use. And the way that I show them kind of the role of outlines is I say, it's part of a process, right? The first part of the process is you're doing the reading for class. The next part is you're in class. And that's going to, you know, sometimes confuse you, sometimes illuminate the reading that you did. 
your outline is the next step where you're synthesizing those things and you're taking those pages of notes and the pages of case briefs and you're synthesizing them. But there's a step beyond that. And that's what are you going to do with that outline? So one thing you're going to do might just be reread it, but I want to push you to use it to answer questions. I want to push you to use it to explain other people, the law based on your outline. So my big thing for students is your outline shouldn't be the final product. It's a tool. It's a step along that process. And so the number one, I would say maybe the number one thing that I hear from students when I ask them, what do you wish you had done your 1L year is they say, I wish I'd used practice problems earlier. And so I really try to emphasize to students, I say, don't wait till the end of the semester to outline and do practice problems. Think of it as concept by concept. So say in property that you just completed the portion on adverse possession. Let's outline the portion on adverse possession and then go find questions specifically on adverse possession and use your outline to answer them. So I really want the outline to be part of that process and maybe use the outline to answer questions and then try the questions without an outline and do that topic by topic as opposed to waiting till the end of the semester and then just kind of trying to take it all in. Okay. So changing gears a little bit, I really want to know what we as professors and specifically selfishly, what we as like podium doctrinal professors like myself can do to foster the kind of self-assessment and active learning that you talk about in the paper? So I think there are a couple things. I mean, one is part of what I tried to grapple with is how can professors give more assessments um, without adding a lot to their grading pile? And so that's why I tried to, one of the reasons I tried to develop self-assessment skills is to take a little bit of that grading shift. The other is to let students know that um, some of the challenges they're facing are are challenges faced by a lot of people at the class. So that's one of the benefits of doing the self-assessment tools and collecting them is you can say, a lot of you are indicating that you had trouble with this. And that helps people become comfortable with understanding that, you know, the challenge they're facing isn't the only one. I think also you know, modeling our own self-assessment. So in one of my classes, Legal Analysis and Methods, which is a class I teach to students who are on probation or warning following their 1L year, I had our Center for Teaching and Scholarly Excellence come in and do a midterm assessment of me. So I left the room and um, someone from CTSE came in and talked to the students about how is the class going? What are you getting from the class? What are you not getting? What's effective? What's not effective? And I told the students, Just like I'm asking, you know, you to engage in getting feedback from other people and yourself, I'm trying to do the same thing. And then I followed up with them and said, okay, some of you gave me this feedback. Here's how I'm implementing it in the class moving forward. And so that's not to say that we give, you know, students free reign over the class. I don't, you know, what, what not, you know, we're, we're the professors, but to model for them that we all need to get feedback from other people. And we all need to be in the constant process of evaluating ourselves and our efficacy and whether we're achieving what we want to achieve. And so I think that's another way that we can do it for students is to kind of show them that we are engaged in this process with them. Um, Those would be some of my suggestions. Well, in the paper, you also, or you, you focus significantly on what you refer to as exam wrappers. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what an exam wrapper is, um, what they might look like, and how you think 
they could potentially be helpful in fostering the development of self-assessment skills? Oh, yes. The focus of my paper, exam wrappers. Um, So exam wrappers are a tool um, that was originally developed at Carnegie Mellon, and they were developed for undergrads. And they're just a one page sheet that guides students through reflecting on the process of how they prepared for an exam, the experience of taking the exam, and what they will do differently in the class moving forward. And so I was became really interested in this idea, and I looked at how it's been used in a variety of classrooms, chemistry, language acquisition, um, mathematics, various sciences, and trying to look if that would be something that would be applicable to the law school classroom, which, spoiler alert, I think it is. And basically, my proposal is that ideally professors would use these following midterms in law school, ideally in the 1L year. And they would help guide students through the process of going what um, Marshall Levitt, the woman who developed them, the professor who developed them, calls going beyond the grade, right? So sometimes we hand, we do all this work on a student's paper, they get it back, they see the grade, and they toss it in the paper. And so the push is to say, how do we help students go beyond that, whether they performed well or poorly? So an exam wrapper would be one page that you hand back with the exam. And it would help them go through thinking, how did I prepare for this exam, right? It might have a list of study techniques. They can say which ones they use. It has a portion asking them of what the experience of taking the exam itself was like. So how did your performance go on different topics? Did you run out of time? Did you have time left over? And then the third part would be saying to them, okay, given this information that you've just presented about yourself, that you've assessed yourself, what do you want to do differently going forward, right? Did you find that something worked for you on the exam, perhaps, you know, outlining before you write your essay answers and you want to practice doing more of that? And so it would basically model for them, kind of give them an outline of the idea of self-assessment. And so there are different ways that you can develop exam wrappers, the kind of two basic ones that I've worked on professors with. One would be kind of what I think of as content neutral, basically not anything specifically about the subject matter, just kind of saying, did you use these study skills? Did you have these exam experiences? But the other could be content specific, where you're asking someone, how did you perform on questions specifically about manslaughter? Or did you reread these cases? Or did you, um, you know, include rule statements on your essay exams? So I think there's a lot of room there. And my proposal in the article is, you know, that professors can use these in really large classes. And my recommendation is, you know, even if the professor doesn't grade them, which ideally they they shouldn't be graded, in my opinion, the professor can at least look over them and at the start of the next class say, let students know that you read them and say to those students, you know, thanks for filling these out. What I see is that a lot of you found this study technique helpful. A lot of you realize that this study technique wasn't helpful. Here's one or two tips for me about how you can best engage with this class or the material. And that helps show students that you are invested in their learning. And in one of the classes at Suffolk, one of my amazing colleagues, um, Professor Murphy, she did a, a, a kind of modified rapper idea in one of her classes asking the students to reflect. And she just got incredible feedback from the students. And one of the things that students said that really stuck with me is they said, she let me see the comments. And a lot of the students said, thank you for teaching us skills that are transferable to other classes. And thank you for caring about us gaining these skills that we can apply elsewhere. So 
all of us as professors know that the skills we teach are transferable, but students don't always see that. But when you take the time to help students think about study skills and exam taking skills and reading skills and outlining skills, they understand that those are skills that they can apply throughout their classes, and it makes them feel really connected and grateful to their professors. I'm interested in your own self-assessment as well, because uh, I know that you said to me uh, previously that there were things about your paper that you were no longer sure you agreed with. And I wonder if you could talk about what those are, why you got there, and what you think that says about your own assessment or self-assessment of your scholarship. Yeah. So, you know, I do still believe in the promise of exam wrappers and the importance of self-assessment in law school. But to be totally honest, one of the big challenges for me is that, you know, the majority of my work is individual work with students. But some of the challenges that my students are up against are systematic, right? Like they're not individual. So to be totally honest, I often feel torn because Sometimes I'm trying to help students find their way through a system that is challenging, not because they're doing anything wrong. So a lot of my students that I work with have never felt the sense of self-doubt that they have now that they're in law school. And they come to me and they're saying, oh, I, you know, I feel dumb and I, I thought that I was smart and maybe I'm not. And um, I want them to understand, you know, I want to help them learn how to self-assess and get better at all these things. But I also want them to understand that some of that isn't their fault, right? Like law school is set up in such a way that it rewards certain types of intelligence and certain types of study habits, and it rewards certain types of, you know, educational privilege and socioeconomic privilege. And so that's one of my big, kind of the work that I feel like I'm going to be grappling with throughout my career is how do I help students individually adjust and feel individually empowered, but recognize that there are these systematic barriers, right? Like law school traditionally is easier for cis white men who come from families where there have there's a lawyer in their family. You know, my dad's a lawyer. I'm sure that helped me understand law school. And so I feel really torn between um, wanting to help all individuals who go to law school find their way through it in the happiest, healthiest, most enjoyable way, and also not wanting them to think that it's all on them. You know, I don't want them to feel like if they're having a hard time, it's just on them. And so the article I'm working on now, which maybe by saying it out loud to you, I'll, I'll force myself to actually do it, is really trying to add to this ongoing discussion that people are having in all areas of higher ed about these ideas of grit and resiliency, right? We all love these ideas of grit and resilience. And, but a lot of people have pointed out there are real problems with how those can be used to um, make people, make students who are already disadvantaged feel like it's on them to kind of suck it up and power through. So I'm interested in how we in academic support as people who largely work one-on-one -on -one with students and work with trying to help each individual student kind of find their best experience, how we do that while also making clear that some of the challenges they're facing are not up to them and just them having, you know, better time management skills, if that makes sense. 
Absolutely. Well, Sarah, and I think this is related to what you were just talking about. I wonder if you could reflect on how we as professors can generally self-assess more effectively, because it strikes me that our ultimate goal is, or at least should be, helping students learn. And I'm not sure we're always as good at that as we could be. And maybe, and again, this is like reading your paper. I couldn't help but feel like the same kinds of problems that students have assessing their mastery of material we can have as professors in assessing our ability to help others understand material. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's part of why I wrote my paper is because initially I was kind of thinking, oh, geez, why do students have such a hard time self-assessing? And then the more I looked into it, I realized, well, they have a hard time self-assessing because all of us do. It's not easy for any of us. I mean, people who, um, everyone struggles to accurately self-assess and, You know, I think that one challenge facing professors is the same as law students, which is how do we kind of recalibrate from external extrinsic motivation to intrinsic motivation, intrinsic assessment? It goes back to what I was saying at the beginning, that in real self-assessment, we're the ones setting the standard by which we would be self-assessed. So professors, you know, okay, if we want to figure out if we are accurately helping our students learn and and effectively helping our students learn. Do we base that on student evaluations? Well, we all know those are rife with challenges and rife with bias. Do we base it on, you know, whether or not we get our promotion or go up for review? Well, we all know that that doesn't necessarily encompass everything we do as professors. So I think the first step in self-evaluation as professors is to think about, well, really, what is our goal, right? What is our goal and how are we going to measure it? Are we going to measure it based on the questions students are asking? Are we going to measure it based on our evaluation of our teaching? Are we going to ask our colleagues to come in and help us? And one thing I talk about in my paper is that people have this idea that self-assessment or self-regulated learning means that you have to do it all yourself. And that is is not true at all. Self-assessment and self-regulated learning is focused on self, but part of that process is knowing when to ask for feedback from others, right? So if you are unsure as a professor, if you're impacting your students in the way you want, if you self-assess as possibly not being as strong in the classroom as you want or as strong in office hours, then that might mean asking for help, right? Asking a colleague that you trust to review your classes, asking someone to sit in. Um, that's part of self-regulated learning and self-assessment is asking other people for help. So I think thinking about what your actual goals are as a professor and if you're achieving those goals is the first step. Um, and then the second step is making sure that you're measuring what is really important to you. I mean, if all that matters to you is, you know, enrollment numbers or grade numbers, then that's one thing. But if what matters is, you know, creating kind of curiosity in your students about your topic, then that's going to be harder to measure and you need to think about that. So I think it's so crucial and important because it's the sort of lawyers that we want to help our students be. And it's just the kind of individuals that we want to help them become. Um, And we want to model that kind of 
lifelong learning for them and show them that we are engaged in trying to learn just as much as they are. So I think there's a lot of opportunities there. And I think the good news is that most people who are professors are really curious by nature. And hopefully that extends to curiosity about themselves. Awesome. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about your paper. I learned a lot reading it and even more from talking to you about it. And I'm really excited to implement some of the ideas you talk about in the way I teach and what I do in the classroom. Thank you so much, Brian. Well, feel free to let me know how it goes. And anyone who's trying these kinds of exercises, feel free to reach out. I'm happy to look over any tools and and talk pedagogy. Since I'm learning not to yearn so much.